0: Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. We are one session into it, so today is session two, and I'll explain what that's about, but I just wanted to make you aware of what's coming up very quickly. Uh, I encourage you to take a look at your program, the bulletin you should have received uh, last hour or this hour if you came for a 11 o'clock class. But uh, in there, you will find that tonight we have our home groups, and if you would like to be a part of a home group, you can find out where they meet by asking the folks over at the Information Center. Uh, Before you leave, and then this Wednesday is the conclusion of our midweek program. As a matter of fact, we don't have our full complement of uh, classes. Those ended last week uh, for kids or adults or teens. The only thing coming up this Wednesday is the Derby for the Kids for Truth uh, Pinewood Derby race. And that's always a lot of fun, so if you have a a kid who's entered in that, uh, there's a car you have to help them make to put in it and see if you can win a prize out of it. But it's fun whether you win a prize or not. So that'll be at Patrick Henry, where we normally meet for our midweek, at uh, 7 o'clock. And I think if you have to register your car and all that junk, you've got to get there early, like 6 o'clock. But the race itself starts at, at 7. One week from today is Mother's Day. So next week we will have a uh, Mother's Day-themed message for our, our ladies to try to encourage and instruct them. And then uh, on Memorial Day, May the 28th, Monday, May 28th, is our annual Memorial Day picnic. And that is going to be at Lake Erie Metro Park this year. We normally have it at Thorn Park, which is at Telegraph and King, but it's not only not available for that particular hour; it's not available the entire summer, unless they change that. But they are doing renovations there, and so that's why we can't use it uh, for Memorial Day and perhaps for Labor Day either. So we had to find an alternate location. Uh, lake Erie Metro Park is where it is. That's uh, a bit east by the by the lake. But uh, 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 if you can make it, it's a nice place and we'll have a great time. And it's $5. That's the other downside. You have to have pay an entry fee to get in. So $5 per vehicle. Living right in a world gone wrong. Why are we doing this series? Because we are in a world where all agree that uh, something or some things are, are wrong. And how Christians who are told in the book that God has given us that there is something wrong with the world. How we are to relate to that world has, become, has been a big problem for centuries. And it's been addressed in a number of ways and often in erroneous ways. And so because the world is a mess, there is definitely something wrong. And because we are called by our God to remain in it and relate to it, and because often Christians relate to it in incorrect, improper ways. For all of those reasons, I wanted to do a series of this sort, living right in a world that's gone wrong. Now, what are the ways that Christians have, over the centuries, tried to relate to the world? Jesus said the way to relate to the world in John 17 is, you're in it, but you're not to be of it. So, the world... And its values and its priorities and its desires are the sphere in which you are to carry out what I, God, have told you to do. You're in the world. But you are not to be of the world. That is, the source of your values and your priorities are, is to be different. If you follow the teachings of Jesus, if you read those, they're to be radically different, at the root different. So you're in the world, but you're not to be of it. You're physically here and you're surrounded by all of the manifestations of its values and its desires and its priorities. But you're not to be of it. In it, but not of it. That's the right way to relate to the world. But then there are, there are other wrong ways. You can be in the world and of the world. Well, that's somebody who is just not a, a believer. And so that's your, your, your typical person who's not a follower of Christ, they are in the world as well, but they're also of it, and they don't see any problem with it. That would be the the majority of people, the vast majority of people, in it and of it. Or you can be not in it and not of it. Now, who is that? Well, the not of it suggests that these are people who are trying to live by a different set of values, not of it. The values and the priorities and the desires are sourced elsewhere, They're not in it. That's the good news because Jesus... Or not of it, excuse me. That's the good news. Jesus said not to be of it. But they're also not in it. So in order to stay from being... To keep from being contaminated by the world's values, priorities, desires, they remove themselves from it. So this would be Amish folks. This would be monastics throughout church history. This would be often uh, fundamentalists. Uh, those of us who, uh, who have taken the call to be holy, that is, the word literally means set apart, from the world to mean being separate physically from the world. And that's a mistaken approach, but one that I'm very familiar with. I actually grew up with some of that, and some of you have as, as well. Jesus says you are in it, but not of it. Some, those who are not believers, are both in it and of it. Some up to be not in and not of, but then the fourth way to do it is to not be in, but of. And that is we've got all our own separate stuff. You know, we've got you got T V shows, we got Christian T V shows. You got talk shows, we got Christian talk shows. You got amusement parks, we got Christian amusement parks. You think about it. Christians have tried their best to create a complete parallel universe. you got your stuff, we got ours. We're not in it. But all that animates us, the desires, the priorities, the values, is very much the same. We've got our places and we've got our stuff, so we don't have to hang around with you people. We get to hang around with the people we like and we identify with But our values are very much like yours. That is, who is that? I say that's the majority of evangelical Christianity. That our values are sourced in the world and we import those into our parallel parallel world. So the reason I want to do this series is there's something wrong with the world. Everybody agrees with that. But also because Christians have mistakenly tried to relate to the world over the years in the ways that I've talked about, there's only one proper way to do that, and that's to be, as Jesus said, in it and not of it. So all agree there's something wrong. But we don't agree on what that is. And here then I'd like to continue what we left off with last week. We don't agree on what that is that is wrong. And here's why we don't agree. It is because, and I want to give you three Three areas, three reasons we don't agree. The first one is that unbelievers have no basis to know what's wrong. We don't agree with what's wrong. Here's why. Unbelievers have no basis to know. Now, I alluded to this last week when I talked about Christopher Hitchens, He's now dead uh, as of last year, but before he died, he wrote a book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, Makes Everything Worse. And uh, Hitchens uh, was in a debate, I told uh, told you, with a, a fellow, he debated a lot of people, but Douglas Wilson was one of them. I know some of you looked up the debate online. And in the debate, Wilson pressed Hitchens on this very issue. You keep talking about things not being right, that religion makes things worse. You use words like better and worse. How do you know what's better and worse? On what basis do you say that? And Hitchens doesn't want to answer. He doesn't want to answer because he doesn't really have a good answer. He finally comes up with innate human goodness. That's his phrase. If you go and look up that debate, that's what you'll find him saying. Innate human goodness. That is, there's this common goodness that humanity has, and there's this general agreement about the way things ought to be. And that's, and that's the basis. And as you, as you challenge him on who wrote the book that tells us what innate human goodness is, he doesn't know, and all the stuff I said last week, Christopher doesn't know. So one of the reasons we don't agree on what is wrong is because unbelievers don't have a basis... For saying what is wrong. Now, I used Hitchens as an example. Let me give use somebody else. Some of you may know the name Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz is uh, an attorney of some renown, Harvard professor, was part of the mid-'90s dream team that was successful in getting O.J. off the hook. Dershowitz. Uh, very intelligent, well-spoken, quick, atheist. He was debating several years ago a fellow named Alan Keyes. Anybody remember Alan Keyes? The African-American gentleman who ran for president on a Republican ticket. Didn't get very far, but a very conservative guy, uh, but also a very skilled debater. They debated the issue of whether or not God is necessary for morality. And Keyes said yes, and Dershowitz said no. During the debate, which I had an opportunity to watch, uh, Keys at one point, asks Dershowitz, well, tell me, in your words, why the Holocaust was wrong. Now, this is cutting close to home because Dershowitz is Jewish and he had relatives who were, who were killed in the Holocaust. And he, like Hitchens, it, it, when you're an atheist, it's hard to come up with a, a basis. But uh, he finally said, and this is a quote, it violated conventional norms of morality. The Holocaust is wrong because it violated conventional norms of morality. Now, do you, perhaps some of you see the potential flaw in this. If I can get enough people to agree with me, let's say I'm Hitler then what's conventional all of a sudden changes, doesn't it? What was conventional becomes unconventional. And the conventional norms of morality can then change, and now I guess it's okay. But this is the best that an otherwise intelligent, well-spoken unbeliever can do. Something's wrong, but we don't agree on what is wrong because, one, unbelievers have no basis for knowing what's wrong. They complain about what's wrong. They talk about the way it ought to be and who ought to do this and who ought to do that and why we Christians shouldn't impose our morality on them. But they have no basis for saying why we shouldn't do that. What morality is or what immorality is. Unbelievers don't have a basis for saying what's wrong. Secondly, Unbelievers have no categories to decide between different kinds of wrong. No categories to decide between different kinds of wrong. Now, I already said they don't have a basis for determining what's wrong, but that doesn't keep them from doing it. They'll continue to say, as you must, certain things are wrong, certain things ought not happen, it ought not be this way. Why not? Make something up. But having now said there are certain things that are wrong, they also suffer from the problem of having no categories to differentiate, decide between different kinds of wrong. Now, here's what I mean. I think we would all recognize that there... Well, let me back up. I would say that there are things that I personally do wrong. And there are things, wrongs, that are done to me. Two different categories. Things I do wrong and wrong that's done to me. But you're a a poor, unwitting unbeliever. How do you differentiate those? Where did you get categories for stuff that people do wrong and they're culpable for, Versus suffering that's imposed on me, things that happen to me, things that are done, things that are done to me. Now I'll come back to that in a minute. But sin is meaningless. The idea of me being culpable for doing things, wrong is meaningless apart from God. If you want to impress probably nobody. And quote Dostoevsky, who, in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov said, If God does not exist, all things are permissible. If God does not exist, everything's permissible. But if you don't have that, if you don't have that basis, then sin is meaningless apart from, apart from God. So let me give let me give an example. Uh, some of you know the name Cal Thomas. Cal Thomas is a journalist, conservative guy, Christian guy as well. He's on uh, he's on Fox sometimes, uh, so he's on TV sometimes, a pundit. But uh, he wrote a book that I have on my shelf years ago called "Book Burning." And the and the gist of the book was that. Conservatives are often accused of wanting to censor information, burn books, go back centuries, you know, to the dark ages and burn books. And his point in his book was, liberals don't get accused of burning conservative books because our books don't even get on the shelf to begin with. That was the that was the premise of the whole book. Our books aren't allowed. He actually documented how, back at the time he wrote that, conservative books you couldn't hardly even find them in the libraries all of that. So there's nothing to burn because it ain't there. But in the course of making his case, he told some stories about encounters that he would have when he would go and speak on college campuses, which he did at that time fairly often. And he would go to these college campuses and he would try to make the case to these young students that they need to have an objective basis for right and wrong, for morality, And without fail, he would be met with howls of protest. And he would have people come up and talk to him after. Here are a couple of people that came up and talked to him. One was a guy that he called Mr. Uh, 3.0. The guy comes up to him, young person, says, Look, I'm a 3.0 grade point average political science major. And I don't need you, God, the Bible, or Christianity to tell me what to do. And uh, Cal Thomas said, well, I perceive that you are cocky. And he said, I think there should be a law that cocky people should be killed. Tell me why I'm wrong. And the kid left. (laughs) Now, he would do that kind of thing. And Another time, he had a, a young lady come to him. And he did the same sort of thing with her. Why would it be wrong for me to take out a a gun and and shoot you? And she says, well, that's against the law. He says, what if I can get enough people to agree with me that it ought to be the law, that cocky people ought to be be shot? And uh, he he says, in fact, you don't like my position. What's to keep you from killing me? You know, people kill Christians. And they think it's a good thing to do. What's to keep you from... She said, I would never do that because it would violate... My socialization process. And he said, you're what? My socialization process, which is the way I was raised. My parents taught me that that kind of thing is wrong. And he says, well, okay. I didn't have your socialization process. And my parents didn't teach me that it was wrong to kill cocky people. Now what? Now you see, people make all sorts of claims about things being wrong. They're not the way they should be. It's not the way it ought to be. But without an objective basis for morality, they have no basis for saying so, that this is wrong, even though they believe so. And they have no categories for distinguishing between different kinds of of wrong. And so sin is meaningless apart from God. And so how now do I hold someone individually responsible for the wrong they do? What you did is objectively wrong. As a matter of fact, it's criminal because it's wrong. And we're going to throw you in jail. Now just to show you the, the way this seeps into the common consciousness... This has always amused me, but more than amused me, it's bothered me. Think about the way people use the word sick. Sick. And here's the way the Bible uses the word sick. You've got a physical malady. You've got pneumonia. You've got a broken leg. You've got a brain tumor. You're sick. But in a world that cannot differentiate between sin and suffering, categories of wrong, sick becomes flattened out. So somebody who has extreme behavioral issues, forget the, the source of those issues for the moment. They just have extreme behavioral issues. You know, they're, they're skipping, a, a young person skipping school all the time. Or somebody who just goes and gets wasted on alcohol regularly. Gets violent and uh, and obscene in their language, and we say to them things like, "Maybe you've said this. You've heard people say this. You're sick. You need help." Think about this. For me, if somebody's sick, I'm compassionate. You're sick. You're a victim. My daughter was sick for three days last week, home from school. Treated her like a queen, little princess. You ask her. I'm telling you. What do you want, what do you want to eat? Panera? You got it. I go to Panera. I'll do anything not to have to cook. I kiss her little cheek. She's on, Kim was on jury duty all week. And so I'm Mr. Mom, taking care of our little girl. So what do you want? I, I get it for her. Why? She's sick. She's not here today. She still hasn't fully recovered. Now, I wouldn't think of her laying on the couch there going, you're sick. You need help. Get some help, will you? You say what? You know, we laugh. People do it all the time. Because we got no categories for sin, sickness, suffering. And so stuff that used to be sin now becomes sickness. 1973, Carl Menninger, not a Christian, a psychologist, wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin. That was the title. 1973, he saw where the trends were going. So we all know stuff is wrong in the world, but unbelievers have no basis to know what or why. No categories to decide between different kinds of sin. And then thirdly, therefore, cannot develop a basis for ethics. Unbelievers cannot develop a consistent basis for ethics. No, we live in we live in a very very confused world. And just think about think about the horror of this. That you have people who would be in support of the right to choose. To, in their words, terminate. In the Bible words, kill. An unborn child. But will protest and even get violent over the mistreatment of a seal. Now why? Because there's no differentiation. Humanity has just, you've just had more time. In terms of a qualitative difference between us and, and them, on what basis do you say that? I mean, on what basis do we say it? That God has made humanity special. Humanity alone is made in the image of God. There's a good reason, there's a good basis for special protections for human beings. Now, let me just, I'll just throw this out there. I'm not trying to solve every ethical dilemma here. I'm just trying to make, make these categories clear to you. But you take euthanasia. Euthanize. Thanatos is the Greek word for death. And you is the prefix for good. So euangelion in the Bible is good news, the gospel. Eulogy means good words. Euphemism. All right. Euthanasia. Happy death. That's what the word means. Happy death. Good death. And one of the arguments that I have heard, because I've argued this, I've heard made is, look, we euthanize animals. We put them out of their misery. And we're going to let humans suffer? But you know what my response to that is? The reason we're quick to put animals to death is because animals aren't worth what humans are. We don't want to mess with them. It's just, you know, one more animal. Now, I'm not saying we ought to do it frivolously, gratuitously, and any of that. But I won't lose too much sleep, you know, over a horse that wasn't able to run in the Kentucky Derby. You know, if a a horse gets killed in the Kentucky Derby or is not able to run, you know, I'm going to say I feel bad because you want me to. I don't really feel all that bad, okay, just to be honest. So, maybe I shouldn't lie while I'm teaching. <laughs> I don't feel all that bad if the horse doesn't run. If the jockey gets killed, I feel really bad. Because there's a big difference between them. So, what is the objective basis for ethics? Now, those of you who are philosophically inclined, we have just looked at three, discussed briefly three categories. No basis to know is called epistemology. And no categories to differentiate sin and and suffering. That's called ontology or metaphysics. And then ethics, the three major areas of philosophy. I mean, to put it in a nutshell, (laughs) the reason the world is in a mess, we don't agree why, and here's, here's why we don't agree. We don't have the same philosophy of life. That's why. We don't have the same epistemology. We don't have the same metaphysics. We don't have the same ethics. And you know where it all starts? It all starts with the first one of those. The first one, the basis of knowing. Because everything else flows from that. How do I know? How do you know what's right and wrong? How do you know the way the world works? Did you just make it up? Is it because you say so? Of course not. Now, I'd like to, uh, believe it or not, bring some Bible into the equation. Here, And so I'd like to show you that these competing philosophies of life are given to us squarely in Scripture. One of those presentations is in Acts chapter 17, Acts 17. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can listen as I read. Acts 17. And there are these competing views of the world, competing philosophies competing understandings of how we know and, and and what we are. Are we strictly material matter or is there matter and immaterial, immatter, non-matter, spiritual? And, and how do we develop ethics out of that? Well, there's competing philosophies. And you've had them since the beginning and you had them in New Testament times and you had them when the great Apostle Paul went to a city called Athens Athens Greece and Athens Greece of course we all know is the philosophical capital of the secular world now I say the secular world you ever you, you' all ever heard of a guy named Saint Jerome uh, he was a third century Christian uh, early Christian and he would get in these worldview philosophy debates and he asked this famous question, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? Do you know what he was saying? From Jerusalem you get a completely different view of the world than you get from Athens. Different worldviews, different philosophies. So here's Paul of Jerusalem in Athens in Acts 17. And here's what it says in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Now stop, waiting for who? Verse 15. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So, Paul has his entourage as he's traveling on his missionary journeys. They come to Athens. He is left in Athens, sends some men to fetch Silas and Timothy to join him. Verse 16 says, While Paul was waiting for them, that is, Silas and Timothy then, to join him in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city full of idols. Now when it says he was greatly distressed, greatly distressed is a translation of a Greek word that literally means he convulsed. He had a violent visceral reaction, physical reaction, to what he saw in Athens. Greatly troubled, greatly distressed. It had a physical effect on Paul when he saw this. He saw the city full of idols. Now, as we're going to see as we read on, they had physical idols there, lots of them. So he sees them. And if you're not careful, this is what you'll do. You'll read that and you will place that at such a distance from us in 2012 that you don't see any application. But I don't do that. That would be a mistake. It is true that the city of Athens was full of physical idols. And 2012 Woodhaven is not. Physical idols. You know, we don't have statues that most of us bow down to or most of your friends or coworkers bow down to, right? But make no mistake, my friends, Woodhaven is full of idolaters. Because idolatry... Just stay with me, stay awake. Latria is a Latin word that means worship. An idolatria is worshiping an idol. And an idol is anyone or anything that competes for your affection with the true and living God. Now, how do I know that? Just jot this down. 1 John 5.21. 1 John 5.21 is the last verse in the five chapters of 1 First John. 1 First John 5.21 And that verse simply says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And then the book ends. There are 105 verses prior to that verse. None of them mention the word idol or idolatry. And yet it ends with, keep yourselves from idols. What was that, a brain cramp on the part of John? just couldn't think of anything else. The truth is the book is about idolatry even though it doesn't use the word. You remember 1 John 2:15? Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, remember that? You see idolatry is about what you love and what you desire and what you want. Keep yourselves from the love of the world and its values and its priorities and its desires. And so Paul goes to Athens and he sees these physical representations of that. And he has this physical and visceral reaction to that. And you and I ought to have a similar reaction to what we see going on now here in our culture. As people give themselves to someone's and some things other than the true and living God. So Paul is greatly distressed. City is full of idols. So, verse 17, he reasoned. I want you to catch that. One, he has eyes to see and a mind to filter what is going on. And he sees it and he is greatly distressed because he knows what it represents. We need to know what it represents in our day. And then, having seen it, having eyes to see and a mind to filter, we ought to be moved to action. So, he did something. As a result of now seeing this, he did something. And notice, the something was not, man, i got to get out of here quick. Right? These people are unbelievers. I'm in the midst of unbelievers. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. These people are going to taint me. Quick, bar the door, get me out of here. He didn't take that approach. Why? Because he doesn't take the not in the world approach. In the world, not of the world. So he reasoned. He took it on. And he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. The God-fearers were Gentiles who followed Jewish customs. You find one of these God-fearing, God-fearers in Acts chapter 10, a guy named Cornelius. Do you remember Peter was sent to the house of Cornelius and it says Cornelius was a God-fearer. It doesn't just mean he was a guy who feared God in general. That's a term for Gentiles who follow Jewish customs. And he goes to the synagogue and he reasons with the Jews and the Gentiles who followed the Jewish customs, the God-fearing Greeks. And in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. Basically, it means anybody he could get an audience with. He was looking to talk to. A group, verse 18, of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them said, what is this babbler trying to say? All right, a babbler. The word babbler literally is a seed picker. So what is this guy who's got a bit of this and a bit of that, but apparently can't put it together in a coherent fashion? This guy is really, st- you're in Athens. You've got to bring your a game." We're intellectuals, academics, philosophers, Epicureans, Stoics. Does that impress you? Bring your A game, you seed picker. But you see, Paul was a highly intelligent fellow. Highly intelligent fellow. It had nothing to do with Paul's intellect versus their intellect. It had to do with their ability to see from Paul's perspective. And they can't. They can't put it together. He's a seed picker, a babbler to them. Some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say, verse 18? Others remarked he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was teaching or preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, that explanatory note actually explains. They said he seems to be advocating new foreign alien gods we haven't heard of. Gods, notice, plural. Gods. Why did they say this? Because... He was preaching the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. The Greek word resurrection is in the the female gender in Greek. And so they heard him talking about Jesus and the resurrection, and they thought he was presenting a male God and a female God. No kidding. So you talk about being from two different worlds. He's a seed picker. He's presenting... Because we have two totally different bases from which we're coming. Paul's trying to communicate to them. Verse 19, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him. And when it says they took him and brought him, they took him. It wasn't, Paul, here's a map quest. And we would like to escort you to the meeting of the fathers of the city because I know they would love to hear what you have to say. When it says they took him, they seized him, they grabbed him, and they said, you're coming with us. Because you don't get to introduce new gods without going through the guys first. These are the fathers of the city who met in a particular place called the Areopagus. And they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is you're presenting, bringing strange ideas to our ears. We want to know what they mean. Luke wrote this. And Luke says, parenthetically, in verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Now, I just want to stop there for a second. And I've got three minutes. Uh, I I have occasion to uh, frequent, how do I say this delicately, uh, restaurants a lot. Uh, you, may, you may be able to tell. But it's often a place where I meet people. I meet folks for counsel and so on. So sometimes I'll be there early I'll, and, and I'm fascinated to hear people talk, whether it's in a line at a coffee shop or I'm fascinated what people talk about. And saddened. At the time people will spend talking about nothing. Or, they may be talking about something very important. But they have no earthly idea how to talk about it. It's just me spinning my yarn and you spinning your yarn and your opinion versus my opinion. And I always think to myself, has it ever occurred to you (laughs) that there might be a God in this world who knows the deal and who may have deigned to tell us some things about the very kinds of topics you're talking about. What's wrong with kids in this generation? What's wrong with our political system? What's wrong with Wall Street? What's wrong with... Much of the talk is about what's wrong, isn't it? But nobody has an earthly idea what to do about it other than spin yarn and give their two cents. And that's all it is. And Paul says this. Verse 22, he stood up and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. The word translated religious is superstitious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. We've got gods and goddesses for everything. In case we miss one, to the unknown God. Now notice what he says, verse 23. Now that you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. That is not, (laughs) that's not a compliment. You are devoting yourselves to something in ignorance. You don't know. This gets back to my first point. Epistemology, how do you know? You don't know. You have no clue. He's going to go on to tell them, show them that they have no clue. Because even some of your own, this is my word, clueless poets, verse 28. Even some of your own clueless poets have said, we are his offspring. But you're the ones who can't put it together. You're the seed pickers. I'm going to declare him to you, and he begins in verse 24 with a beautiful three verses worth. Of saying the God who made heaven and earth and everything in it. I mean, that's where he starts, baby. <laughs> There's God first, and he made everything, and that includes you. And he does not dwell in temples made by hands as though he needed anything. For he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Yow! Scorching! You're responsible to Him. He made you. He gave you... You can't even say Areopagus without using His oxygen. Because He gave you the breath to do it. And He, verse 26, has made of one man, one blood, all men. And He has determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. (laughs) I'm a philosopher in Athens, and I'm going, get me out of here. If if what that guy says is true, and everything I believe is wrong, and I'm responsible not to some... God on a shelf. I'm responsible to a living, breathing, creating, sovereign God. And Paul's going to go on to say he's appointed a man, Jesus, through whom he will judge the world. And he calls on every man, every person, everywhere to repent. That's what he says. Two totally different worldviews, different philosophies. The world is messed up. They knew their world was messed up. They had ethical systems. They just had no basis for knowing. They had no way to differentiate between different kinds of sin, no way to really develop an ethical basis. And Paul takes that head on. And we're going to pick it up uh, from there next week. I apologize. I uh, All right, I'm just going to go on for another half hour, and then let's pray. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and to see uh, wisdom there, philosophy, love of wisdom. Thank you, Lord God, that you have given us a love of wisdom, but a love of. True wisdom, genuine wisdom, wisdom that comes from you, wisdom that is outside of ourselves, wisdom that puts it together, wisdom that gives us, that that flows from a, a basis to know and gives us clear categories to differentiate and then to delineate that which is right, that which is wrong. Lord, we live in this world where you have placed us to be light and darkness, a world that is messed up because we've rejected your wisdom. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to do this. Thank you for equipping us to do this. And thank you for the opportunity to be here now in 2012 in Woodhaven, in Trenton, in Downriver, Michigan. Because, Lord, as the darkness descends and gets deeper and people begin to see the consequences of their lack of a foundation and the superstructure is crumbling all around, people begin to turn and to look for another answer. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to prepare hearts that will be open to the answer in Jesus, who for us is wisdom from God. And I pray that you will help us to have an excitement about that as your church, as your people, that we are allowed to be your lights in darkness. Go with us this week as we seek to do that in our workplaces, in our homes, and with our families. And bring us back safely next week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.